Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese, and I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. My guest today is Axel Simon. Axel is associate professor of philosophy at Bentley University. He works primarily in philosophy of mind, with special interest in social cognition and joint attention. Axel's new book is titled The Shared World, Perceptual Knowledge, Demonstrative Communication, and Social Space. It is newly published with MIT Press. When you think about it, a lot of what we're able to accomplish in our day-to-day lives depends on the ability to act and think in concert with others. And often, this involves not only the capacity to perceive together the world around us, we must also know that we perceive together. In other words, there must be perceptual common knowledge. Now, questions mount quickly. How is this kind of knowledge possible? How does it arise? What does its possibility show us about our sociality? What does it suggest around, about the world around us? In the shared world, Axel Simon develops an account of perceptual common knowledge that's both philosophically subtle and empirically informed. And so there's a lot to talk about. But let's begin, as we usually do, with our guest. Hello, Axel. Hello, Bob. Pleasure to be how, here. How are you today? Yes, thanks. I'm very well. I get to talk about, you know, a project that I have been thinking about for a long time. So what could be better? Well, fabulous. Why don't you then uh, start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and all the work that you've been doing? Yes. Uh, well, of course, you know, there's many things one can say about oneself, but um, here's one way to say something of interest, um, perhaps. Um, I have always been fascinated by stories. I've always devoured novels, um, fictions um, about persons, about people. And one of the most important books um, of my teenage years Perhaps the important, most important book was The Magic Mountain um, by Thomas Mann. So, you know, the story where a young man um, at the beginning of the war, you know, goes off into a Swiss um, a Swiss sanatorium um, and stays there and, you know, has intimate en- encounters um, with, at the end of the day, you know, death, but also, also philosophy and philosophy about life and death. Um, and I read this book over and over again, and it's a deeply philosophical book. It, you know, riffs on Schopenhauer, and so I began to read Schopenhauer, um, and uh, then, you know, via Schopenhauer, got into Kant. Um, and uh, when the time came to uh, choose a course of study, um, I opted for uh, philosophy, um, German literature, and art history. I did all of this first in Hamburg and then in Munich. Um, and both of um, the latter two subjects sort of dropped out fairly quickly as subjects of academic interest because I discovered um, that in order to enjoy and love stories, novels, um, you don't have to study them. You just have to read them. You don't, you know, if all you want is to be taken in, you know, sort of taken away um, by, 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 by a story, uh, you don't have to have a theory about that story. And the same is true, or was true, is true um, for, um, for, for pictures, um, artworks, you know, to, to be captivated by an artwork. For me, I don't have to have a theory about the artwork. I just have to have the thing itself. Um, and philosophy was different because um, I found and still find that um, the study of philosophy and the actual doing of philosophy 
are much more closely related than, say, the study of fiction and the writing of fiction are. Mm. If you are properly trying to understand the philosophical text, you are already philosophizing. Um, and I found that fascinating. I still find it fascinating. And that's, you know, what uh, got me um, into philosophy. Um, mm. <laughs> I, I, um, I, 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 I was, I got particularly interested in the social aspect of the field, um, you know, sort of how do, how do, how does cooperation work? Um, how do we get to make sense together of the world we live in? Um, how do we get to arrange and order it? And um, I did a master's in political philosophy because I thought, you know, this would give me the right answers. But, you know, sort of it turned out eventually over, you know, by, by various um, detours that really I was interested in um, the structural perceptual underpinnings um, of all of that rather than, you know, the normative um, underpinnings of it. And so, um, you know, after a detour into various detours into journalism, I always wanted to be a journalist when I was younger and um, for my sins, a detour into management consulting, um, you know, just half an hour into the job, I realized that um, I, I, I really wanted to do philosophy rather, but, you know, I stuck it out for two years. So after all these details, you know, I eventually, um, about seven years ago, um, began to tackle uh, the project in earnest about which we're now talking. Well, fabulous. Um, and let me just say that the, the, the shift um, from political philosophy to would you say now that you're 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 mainly interested in sort of philosophy of mind and and cognition? Hmm. Um, for now, so I think <laughs> um, what 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 didn't work for me in political philosophy, and you know, for me, right? This is not a judgment about political philosophy. This is a judgment about me. Um, is that I needed answers about the nature of mind um, before I could really think about, you know, the, the normative questions arising in our, you know, living together. Um, and so um, I, I, I suspect that um, if my brain, you know, keeps, keeps working for long enough, um, eventually um, on the back of the work I'm doing now, I might actually come back to the normative questions. Um, but for now, you know, I am interested in um, the perception and um, epistemology of joint uh, shared phenomena, which I think are awfully important um, for our understanding of who we are and our understanding of um, percep perception um, and knowledge quite generally. Well, great. So uh, um, uh, that's a nice segue um, into talking about the content of the book. Um, so, uh, and maybe it would be helpful to start at the very beginning uh, of the shared world, um, which uh, is the book cover. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, the, 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 the shared world has a cover, uh, that features a pretty striking, uh, image. Um, and it is a painting called the raft of Medusa, which I was not familiar with before. Uh, I, I saw the book and then started reading it. Um, but the book opens with a discussion of, uh, the philosophical, um, significance uh, of uh, what's depicted um, in this painting. Um, and I found it really effective in setting up uh, the issues uh, that um, you're concerned with uh, in, in the book. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the painting and um, how it sets up uh, the, the problems that you're aiming to explore? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, so this painting, The Raft of the Medusa, by uh, uh, Théodore Géricault, it's a, it's a romantic masterpiece. It hangs in the Louvre. It's a massive, massive work. It's five, five by four meters or something like that. And um, I actually, you know, I, I have known this painting um, since my teenage years, but not because... Um, I hung about the Louvre, but because I, I was a fan of the Pogues, um, so the, <laughs> the Irish folk punk band. Yes, and, yes. And um, and they have a, an album um, that's called Rum, Sodomy and the Lash, um, suggestively enough. And um, the cover of that album um, is a rift on um, Jericho's painting um, with the members of the Pogues um, in it doing unsavory things. Um, so, so, I'm surprised I didn't recognize that. I like them too. Anyway, please go ahead. So, so that's that's how I that's how I how I you know originally came to um, know this painting, and then a few years later I saw it in the Louvre and was just blown away um, by its power. And what what fascinates me so about this painting is that it seems to depict um, the social aspect of the human condition. Um, and its place in nature. Um, so what you see is um, a, a raft um, that's, you know, sort of uh, the remainder of a shipwreck. So, you know, sort of uh, Jericho writes, uh, paints an actual actual historical scenario here. Um, 15 people, I think, out of about 150 survived. It was a huge political scandal at the time for various reasons. Um, and they're huddled together on this raft. Um, they're clearly destitute. Um, some of them are dead. Some of them are half falling off. They're holding each other up, propping each other up, um, forming one giant human wave. So all the bodies interact, you know, form sort of one movement that's offset against the movement of the waves on the ocean. And the man at the top frantically waves um, a handkerchief because at the far, in the far distance, if you look really close, there's a ship and that right. ship will rescue them in the end um and um i i asked um an artist to make a comic um of this painting um because it seems to um uh, be a perfect metaphor for what the book is about um it um shows up um the way in which we are bound to, forced to interact um, together in ways that are linguistic and bodily, that are, that are deeply dynamic, um, in order to form um, a shared outlook um, and a shared form of knowledge about what there is um, in the environment. So, you know, it's a metaphor on, um, on, 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 on social uh, knowledge and, and, and social perception. Um, and um, that's, that's, you know, sort of why I chose it. Right. And so uh, I take it that um, part of what's depicted on the cover is the, the sort of the, the guy at the, at the well, is it a helm? I mean, at the guy at the top um, sort of has a thought bubble um, where um, you see that he sees a ship on the horizon. Um, and I take it that um, the, the one of the uh, sort of central um, sort of problematics of the book is um, – how is it possible in virtue of the fact that this person who is situated in some particular way to lay eyes on that object off on the horizon, how can that become um, sort of a shared object of uh, perception, even for those who are not well 
situated to look on it themselves. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's partly right. Um, uh, and even for those who are um, situated right. to look at, on it themselves. Um, you, you know, I think the foundational question for um, social modes of um, perceiving and knowing can be formulated something like this. Um, we um, have very good reasons to think that um, perception and knowledge um, uh, has a lot to do with builds on processes um, that are carried out um, by particular individuals with their individual um, brains um, and then also individual minds from particular places in the world. Um, if if these processes are at the heart of what constitutes perception and perceptual knowledge, um, how can it be that um, we can know things in common, that we can know things together and that we can perceive things together? Um, for perception, you can... Um, pose the question very strikingly because you know you you might simply say look you know all perception is from stand from somewhere perception is always standpoint dependent different perceivers even joint ones occupy different um different standpoints so how can they perceive jointly um and you know you can sort of um you can you can pose a almost parallel question for the question for the for the topic of knowledge and uh right. so what we need i think if we want to understand um, the, 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 if you want the nature of sociality or of human sociality in any way, we have to, we, that's what we, that's what we have to figure out. That's what we have to understand. Okay, great. So that's, um, in fact, where the book, uh, begins. The first part of the book, um, is, uh, de- deals with the very concept of, uh, perceptual common knowledge. And you lay out two different kinds of approaches, uh, to perceptual common knowledge, um, and uh, examine uh, some problems, particularly uh, a, a regress problem that seems to be occasioned uh, by the very idea. Because roughly, although I'll let you sort of fill in the details, you know, if it's perceptual common knowledge, then it looks like you know we there's a sort of KK regress, right? We we have to you know. I have to see, I have to have knowledge of the thing that I'm perceiving, or I have to have knowledge that I'm perceiving that thing. You have to have that knowledge, but we also have to have knowledge that the other one has that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, can you tell us, sort of lay out the, the, the that difficulty, um, and then sort of spell out uh, your preferred, you don't argue uh, so much for um, uh, the externalist approach that you take uh, to perceptual common knowledge, except to say that um, by taking an externalist approach, or, approach you're able to say all these other more promising things about about the problem. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so can you lay, lay out the regress problem and uh, the externalist uh, response? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I'll try. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, and the clock is ticking, so. <laughs> <laughs> Do this in three minutes or less. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, so, okay, step, step number one, I simply take, it for the purposes of the discussion that you know there is an intimate connection between perception or at any rate you know human perception um and knowledge and you know um perceptual knowledge i take it um secures us in the environment in some basic way so you know sort of um that's that's an a stance that you know i find um intuitively plausible um and then you know there's a social version of 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 that of perceptual knowledge um so you know sort of um this kind of knowledge comes about through 
episodes of um, what is usually called joint attention, um, a triadic constellation in which, you know, two perceivers, or could be more, but at least two, are looking together at an object, are thereby able to point it out to each other, um, communicate about it, um, and um, come to know in common things about the thing. Um, this is something that's terribly important for creatures like us. Um, we do that, you know, early in life. Um, I think we'll talk about the developmental trajectory um, later in more detail. But, you know, I, I think this is really something that's, that's, that's at the heart of how creatures like us um, function. And so um, uh, there's, of course, a big literature on, on, on common knowledge. Um, and um, this literature um, asks primarily um, uh, how we explain the common bit. And it right. doesn't, to my knowledge, really ask, you know, sort of what should we think about the knowledge bit? Right? Mm -hmm. um, but of course, there's an independent um, discussion in epistemology, um, <laughs> the you know, biggest discussion, if you want the foundational one, well, you know, what, what is knowledge? Right? And um, so what I do in, in the book is um, I try to um, think through what happens to the notion of perceptual common knowledge. I'm only concerned really um, with the perceptual kind. Um, if you um, take knowledge either to be some sort of justified true belief um, and then you know more promisingly I think um, if you take it to be something that's basic and that's something that's in fact very different uh, more foundational um, than a belief um, and so um, so you know the first thing I, I do and I, I do this in ways that are far from exhaustive I just do this you know almost playfully to sort of set um, set the, 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 the discussion up, um, I ask, um, well, you know, what, what happens um, if we uh, look at uh, common knowledge, um, knowing together in terms of um, a, a conjunctive uh, theory of knowledge. So, you know, sort of knowledge as justified true belief plus, you know, the relevant kinds of um, conditions, uh, whichever you think these conditions may be. Um, and then I, 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 I find that um, we, um, we get entangled very quickly um, in a regress um, that's, that's unpleasant um, and also very hard to get out of. So, uh, because, you know, sort of, um, if you think of um, knowledge in terms of um, some sort of justified true belief, um, and then you try to spell this out, you know, sort of for the common um, case, then, you know, sort of we end up with something like, you know, a construct where to know something in common perceptually is um, to believe trusty and uh, tr truly and with justification um, that the other person believes truly and with justification that P, where P is a proposition that expresses um, a perceptual um, fact, uh, and the other person, you know, sort of uh, believes the reverse um, um, but then, you know, you have to, each person has to, has to go one level up in order to capture what the other person believes and so forth and so on. Um, right. And so you end up with this regress and uh, the regress, um, uh, you might think, uh, is problematic. This is not my view. Um, this is, you know, other people have written about this, I think, very um, powerfully. John Campbell has and, and Mike Wilby has got a very good paper on this as well. Um, uh, the, the regress is, is unproblematic because, first of all, it, it seems to um, uh, violently, violently um, run counter to what seems to be the case um, experientially 
in a joint scenario because, you know, sort of just by looking at something together immediately and primitively, we have a basic kind of common knowledge about what, right. what's the case. Um, uh, this is, is, of course, not, you know, a, a definite objection. You could argue that all of this, you know, happens somehow so personally, the computation, and so, you know, it's not as it, as it looks to us. Um, uh, but then there's other problems as well. You know, you, you might think that um, in order to compute an infinite regress, you have to have... Um, uh, computational resources um, that 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 are also infinite, and of course we don't have <laughs> these, these resources. Um, and then you know the, the, the most important argument against this is um, against uh, this 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 conception of common knowledge is that well, in order to compute compete compute any um, iteration of the regress you already have to have common knowledge. You already have right. to have solved the problem in order to be able to begin to uh, compute the regress. And so um, this doesn't look good, um, <laughs> I think. Um, and so then, um, without really arguing this case out, I'm sure you know you can, you can, you can find arguments against absolutely everything I've just said, but um, I look at the um, alternative. Um, and the alternative is to think um, of knowledge not in terms of a particular kind of qualified belief, um, but in terms of a basic kind of mental state. And this is, of course, an idea I take um, from uh, Tim Williamson. Um, and, uh, you know, then the idea is that, you know, sort of what you know um, is individuated by the way the environment is. Um, and so, uh, so it's the environment that sets, um, that sets the conditions which individuate um, what you know, um, and really it sets the condition for your mental state of knowing. Um, and uh, since the environment um, is deeply social, it already contains other people on the kind of social externalism that, you know, I develop as perhaps the core thesis of the book. Since the environment is deeply social already, um, it individuates um, a proposition that is first known in common by the joint perceivers and in virtue of the fact that it's known in common um, it is individually known by each perceiver. So it gets that it's, it gets that logical relation right. It doesn't try to build up to common knowledge um, from what each individual perceiver knows. It takes common knowledge as the basic case that's directly individuated by the social environment and then on that basis um, allows it to spell out what it is that the individual knows. So it sort of flips it, it it flips the logical order um, around. It puts it on its it, it, it puts it on its head, if you want. And I found that really attractive and really powerful. And you know, that's the core of um, this this thesis of social externalism that I develop in the book. Right. And can you tell us? You introduced this term. Well, I don't know if you introduce it. I mean, um, you use the term joint constellations. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that? Is that just the term for? Um, the claim that knowledge is this primitive sort of state that has um, uh, sociality um, already um, embedded within it? Yeah, um, yeah sort of. Um, so uh, the notion of a joint constellation um, is, 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 I think, a simple one. It is um, a constellation with three constituents, um, two perceivers, and um, the thing that is being perceived by them jointly. Um, and um, as I argue in the book, eventually, you know, we can sort of think about um, this constellation in kind of spatial terms. Um, so uh, it is, you know, sort of it is it is an arrangement, if you want, um, that is distinct, different um, 
from an ordinary um, perceptual constellation in that it has got three constituents. So, you know, when you are by yourself and you're looking at um, the phone on your desk that I just forgot to switch off, but I've done it now, you'll be relieved to hear. Um, <laughs> then, then, you know, there's the phone, one, one, you know, one data point, if you want, you know, sort of one, one object, and then there's you, the perceiving subject, and then, you know, there's, there's some sort of relation between the two. Um, and um, the notion of a joint constellation is different, fundamentally different from that. And, you know, if I'm right, cannot be explained in terms of an ordinary perceptual constellation in that it's got two perceivers and, you know, they're looking at um, the thing together in joint attention. Um, and that really changes, I argue, um, the spatial structure of the environment um, in which um, we are capable of jointly perceiving and um, perceptually commonly knowing about stuff. Right. I see. So, um, so uh, not to not to riff off the the raft of Medusa meta, but um, <laughs> a central plank, uh, so to speak, of your view, um, uh, particularly with respect to this idea of a joint constellation, is the significance um, of uh, various kinds of demonstrative gestures, you know, pointing and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, in the context of joint perception. Um, as I understand it, the thought is that we're able to perceive objects jointly because we can together locate the objects in a kind of triangulation that puts the object and the other perceiver's perspective into a common perceptual framework. Um, am I getting that right? Yes, 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 yes. Excellent. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about how that works? <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> um, so, you know, de de demonstra de demonstratives um, are interesting amongst you know many other things uh, because um there are some demonstratives what you know Kaplan called true demonstratives um that um require some sort of pointing gesture to be you know um semantically complete um so um so um you know if i if i say um this is nice to you and i point at the button on your shirt then you know without further context um it's 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 not clear you know whether i'm referring to the button on your shirt or your shirt shirt or you uh, you know um or the room you're in and so forth and so on um and so um so um for for, for my purposes um demonstratives are you know interesting and vital because um joint constellations um come about and are maintained um by um a particular kind of bodily communication um that involves um the the constant um, adjustment and readjustment of the individual perceiver's um, directions of gaze, so that um, the, the the commonly perceived object um, remains um, within within view. Um, and um, this is, first of all, you know, um, deeply relevant, I think, um, for um, a theory um, of, of joint perception because it, it allocates um, a crucial role to a kind of communication that's not linguistic, that's much more basic than that, that involves the body, that involves, you know, sort of pointing, social referencing, um, exchanging glances, and so forth and so on. And, um, you know, so, so, so it, 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 it argues or it, it, you know, sort of produces a view that's in favor of what you might call a particular kind of embodied um, view of perception, even though, you know, sort of 
that's a bit of a cheap slogan um but you know you'll <laughs> have to do for now um and um and right and so 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 then um you know one crucial and difficult question that arises for um this externalist a- approach that i'm pursuing is um so what is it um that um that perceivers know in common minimally that they have to know in common um if they are to um perceive jointly um and it's a pressing question because you know as already observed um we are in joint cases perceiving from different perspectives and so you know sort of things may be looking different um to us um we may be individuating you know the things we jointly perceive differently so what is it that you know sort of holds the triadic structure um together um and um you know i am much taken with the observation that um we can um perfectly know well and, and, and know in some cases what it is that um we're um uh, jointly perceiving and communicating about and knowing about, even though what um, the speaker says about the object is false, or even if he uh, singles out the object incorrectly. Um, yeah. And, um, and um, you know, the question is then, well, you know, sort of how is that possible? And um, the answer um, that I have come up with is, um, well, it's possible because we know um in common, minimally, where the object or joint perception is located in social space, um, where that means that you know, sort of, it is it is it is located um, in a way that can be determined um, by means of a process of triangulation um, by each of us. Um, so, a process of triangulation that takes both of our standpoints as centers of perception right so that was quite um, mouthful wasn't it sorry yeah so i'm just uh, i want to ask you to sort of spell out um uh with a little bit more detail so you know one of the nice things about the book um, and uh having heard earlier that you have uh, a little bit of you know just something of a background uh in art history it makes a and a concern with literature makes sense of a lot of the running um examples in the book. Um, so one example that runs through the book is um, about uh, two perceivers of a painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a um, a discussion about a particular uh, element at a particular sort of location um, on the canvas and whether it's a, a buoy or just a um, uh, or a representation of a buoy, or just a um, you know a stroke of red paint. Um, could you tell us a little bit, you know, using an example, uh, yeah. maybe that one yeah. uh, about this uh, uh, the sort of way in which the the demonstrative helps us to locate things in space so that mm-hmm. we can achieve common knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, great. Um, so this is you know a favorite painting of mine. Um, it's 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 a Turner painting, and uh, it's a, it's a seascape. Um, and uh, the, the story goes that um, Turner um, put a red dot in the painting when it was already finished, when it was about to be exhibited in London um, uh, on the eve of the, the beginning of the um, exhibit um, in order to um, create a sensation and spite his arch rival um, constable. 
Um, I, I, I don't know whether that story is 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 true. Um, but um, so you know, sort of imagine like we are imagine we are looking at this painting together, and you know, you are saying, "Oh, look, there's a there's a buoy um, in the middle of the canvas broadly," and I say, "No, this is just you know a dot of paint," and you say, you know, sort of, "No, look, it's a buoy. Look at it, you know, sort of it 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 is placed in the right way. It 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 it, it sort of radiates a bit." Um, that's what it is. And then, you know, sort of I look more closely and I take in what you say and, you know, sort of I realize, all right, okay, you're right. This is in fact, you know, represents um, a, a buoy. And so we can have this sort of fairly complex discussion, um, even though um, initially um, we don't agree on what the thing in question actually is. Right. And yeah. how how are we capable of doing this? Well, you know, we're capable of doing this because um, I um, see where you're standing and I follow your pointing gestures and other relevant, you know, bodily expressions. And I know that you've said, you know, this, you've used the demonstrative and, you know, you are looking at where I'm looking at and you're trying to make it as precise as possible. And so uh, so each of us, you know, sort of computes, if you want, um, the the location of the thing that we're talking about. Um, and um, and we can succeed in doing so, even if, you know, we don't um, know in common and actually know that we don't know in common um, what the thing is, right? So the identification of the object um, of perception and then, you know, communication seems to be, uh, well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's non-descriptive. Um, it's, 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 that's just what makes it, you know, sort of demonstrative, but it's also deeply social. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's what I'm taken, taken with. Um, uh, now, of course, you know, sort of the, the objection that always comes up um, at this juncture is, well, um, but, uh, you know, of course, it, it, it could be that, you know, well, you know, you are pointing at, at, at the red dot and I take you to be pointing at a wave that's nearby. And so, you know, really, um, we think that we are jointly attending, um, uh, but actually we're not. Um, and that's, of course, true. Um, and um, uh, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's also true that um, that the capacity for joint perception and common knowledge has got enormous power that that's a real thing you know sort of we often we, we we seem to know when we you know sort of have this have this triadic constellation and uh, and so um you know at, at, at that juncture um i say right um that's true so you know what we need to be very carefully distinguished between is a constellation that one or perhaps even both of us think is a triadic constellation but really it isn't and one that is. So in other words, you know, I'm arguing for um, a disjunctivist account um, of that sort of um, social uh, perception, um, where if it's a joint constellation, we can, we can, we can do an amazing array with, of stuff about it. You know, we can, we mm. can increase our common knowledge about it. You know, I can tell you, to, you tell me it's a buoy and I come to see it. And, you know, then I tell you constable's story and so forth and so on. Um, and which we can't do if, if, if we're mistaken. So, um, so, uh, so I think that, um, that um, in order to, you know, really bring out the power of the epistemic power of our joint constellations, um, we need to really think about um, the character, the nature of perceptual experience, and it seems to me that in order to be uh, to do justice to um, the epistemic power of that sort of experience, we have to uh, we have to be just disjunctivists about it. Um, and then you can say, well, you know, sort of there's this one experience where we are actually looking at the same thing um, that allows us to justify necessarily our you know claims about what it is that's being jointly perceived. 
and you know and and that's very different from if i think we're looking at the same thing but really you know so you're just daydreaming because you've been bored with uh, what i've been rambling on about um <laughs> and so so that's so what ultimately secures i think um the 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 jointness um of our perceptions and of you know what we can come to know perceptually in common about our environment um can't be spelled out in terms of you know um what say the brain does or in terms of you know sort of what 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 you know sort of is being represented but you know sort of we have to we have to look at um what uh, the experience does epistemologically right um so you know sort of it's a kind of epistemological um disjunctivism that i introduce here and um that you know um is supposed to save my bacon right um not everybody <laughs> would like that but yeah. <laughs> Well, so um, fabulous. Uh, th- that's that's very helpful. Um, it also helps to punctuate, um, you know, the role that this um, conception of a shared spatial framework is playing. It's bearing quite a quite a weight uh, in the account. Um, and so, uh, part three of the book um, brings a lot of empirical work. I mean, there's a lot of empirical work discussed throughout the book, but in part three. Um, uh, you, you try to um, make the case uh, for, um, you know, positing or sort of uh, uh, inferring uh, this shared spatial framework from the fact that there are these um, success uh, successes of uh, perceptual common knowledge. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the empirical considerations uh, that you bring to bear uh, on the thesis that we uh, indeed uh, do uh, think and perceive together by means of or by way of uh, a, a a social uh, f- spatial framework. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so to begin with, you know, I should um, point out that, like many of my colleagues, I suffer from massive imposter syndrome um, when, uh, it, <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to discussing psychological evidence because I'm not a trained psychologist, um, and I really, you know, sort of what I did um, when I when I was writing this book um, with great pleasure, um, I, 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 you know, sort of went went chopping basically, you know, sort of in the relevant um, empirical field um, and picked out what I liked. And, you know, sort of try to sort of make sure that, you know, there wasn't anything I, I didn't massively dislike but had to buy anyway, um, and, which would, you know, destroy my thesis. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, the empirical side sort of with, 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 due, like with due warning, you know. Um, so let, sure. let's, 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 um, let's begin by actually talking about um, Gareth Evans. So, you know, not empirical stuff at all. Um, so Gareth Evans, you know, sort of um, is it's somebody I'm like very many of my colleagues much impressed with and um i i i think that you know he has had um extremely interesting things to say about the notion of um of 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 space um and the relation between um egocentric space and um and and you know an objective or you know perhaps allocentric um spatial order and um you know he was adamant that um if we are to be able to situate ourselves as subjects in the objective spatial order um then we need to be agents um you know we it's not possible to to deliver a plausible account of how we are able to to do this um if we don't take it that we interact that we don't manipulate with our body um our our environment 
Um, and um, so that's sort of the starting point, you know. Um, in order, I think, to to think qualifiedly about um, the, the 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 human notion of of space, human spatial frameworks, um, we cannot but begin with um, the consideration um, that we are movers, and you know that that we manipulate objects um, in our in our um, environment. Um, and uh, once uh, you've got that, um, you can look at, you know, um, some um, fascinating um, empirical research um, over the past few decades um, that asks um, how um, do we bring um, our um, internal proprioceptive um, knowledge of, you know, what our bodies do and how our limbs are positioned and moving relative to each other. Um, how do we bring together th that information um, with our perceptual in, um, information um, about our surroundings? And um, the, um, the, the unsurprising answer is that, well, um, you know, these two kinds of information um, have to be integrated um, somehow. So, you know, sort of something has to be going on in our, in our brains that you know sort of puts these two kinds of information together so that um, our bodies are always presented to us in the environment you know in which um, they they operate um, and then you know sort of uh, the studies of ta from tactile extinction um, um, some people with brain damage you know sort of who cannot um, because of um, a certain kind of damage bring these two kinds of information together anymore under certain very specific conditions that's that's sort of of interest here so the the, the first key step here is to um, to consider uh, the notion of peri of peripersonal space um, so this, this isn't you know this this is this, I, I'm just I'm just doing a cheap report on you know empirical research like this is by by no means I I, I did not discover any of Right, just to right. Yeah, right. Um, and once, so this is this is you know sort of as far as I can tell, quite well established. Um, and uh, then you can of course ask, um, well, um, what happens um, when other people um, enter the picture, um, and we act with them. You know, as we do, uh, we already saw that earlier in, in our discussion, um, in joint constellations, you know, we, we, we point things out to each other, we look at each other, all of that. That's a sort of minimal form of, you know, sort of collective activity. And of course, you know, it gets much more complicated than that. Um, we can do amazingly complicated um, things together by, you know, sort of uh, arranging our bodily doings to each other. Um, and um, so, so the question then, you know, can be asked, um, so what happens to this notion of peripersonal space, this sort of bubble that, you know, we carry with us, so to speak, within which we are capable of acting um, on our environment because, you know, our, our mind brains put the relevant kinds of, you know, bodily and environmental informations um, together. Um, and um, there's a, there's in the, this is this is sort of very recent, um, but you know in the five in the past sort of five or ten years, um, there has been some um, I think deeply interesting um, work on the notion of um, a social action space, a social action mm. space. Um, and I'm you know I'm, I'm not going to go into the experiments here first of all because I'm probably going to get them wrong, um, but also because <laughs> <laughs> but also because you know um, we don't really. Have have time but but um it it you know evidence seems to be um emerging that um in the um computation of the action space that surrounds us we're deeply sensitive um to the action spaces of other people 
Um, so you know, sort of these spaces shrink and 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 grow depending on what we do and and how we do it with others. Um, these place these spaces um, can apparently merge uh, when we when you're doing something together. There's one you know experiment. Um, that I discussed at some length um, that argues and um, that finds that, you know, sort of we even are able to create um, in our interactions uh, something that you might think of as a joint body schema where really, you know, the, the bodily presentation of our, uh, of, of, of the positions of our limbs is, is integrated with what the other person does. Um, and so, uh, so there seems to be emerging evidence, um, emerging evidence, like this is not, you know, sort of tied and shut case, but emerging evidence that we, we we do actually operate um, with, um, the, with 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 a, with with a social spatial framework in which we treat not only our own position in space but also um, the positions of those with whom we um, interact as um, centers of perception and action. Right. So this is a little right. bit on you know um, on um, on what's going on here. Um, and um, then the question, a question I ask, well, you know, how is this possible, right? Um, how is that possible? Because you might think, and you know, a long tradition of, of, of philosophers has thought that, well, you know, sort of your body anchors yourself in the world um, in a way that's not negotiable, that's basic, that's where everything starts, um, that's, where, that's where, you know, sort of perception starts, that, that's also perhaps where the self starts. And so how, you know, how, 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 how do, do the other people come into this is a question I ask. Um, obviously, an answer that's not available is a sort of classical, you know, sort of million account of other minds where, you know, sort of we somehow infer what, you know, the others is doing based on knowledge that, you know, sort of uh, what, what we are doing ourselves. Um, and so I develop a, a, a really tentative hypothesis. And I want to stress that I have... <laughs> no idea whether this hypothesis is true. I'm not claiming it's a true hypothesis. I'm I'm just trying to think through for the first time a possible explanation of you know how a joint action space is possible uh, is is you know sort of can get going and and the the hypothesis um, that I introduce I call the multi-location hypothesis and you know the idea is really just the idea. Uh, I'm not claiming this is true that. Um, in our spatial representations, we are able to bind together proprioceptive and perceptual information, um, different kinds of information we need to carry out motor actions, not just at the place we occupy ourselves, but also at places occupied by others, particularly those with whom we cooperate. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, well, let me just say this. Um, so, you know, to the to to the to our audience, um, you know, the uh, you've you've entered several caveats about um, about the empirical stuff and and uh, and and your use of it, but um, uh, that's not to say. Uh, let me emphasize that uh, the book is thin on uh, its um, discussions of this empirical stuff. That is, um, uh, as you say, you, know, you went shopping in the empirical literature, but you know what? What you actually acquired, it struck me at least, um, is a really robust um, set of empirical considerations uh, that. Um, uh, suggest that the kind of account that you're developing um, is on the right track, at least insofar as um, 
uh, the empirical uh, literature is a good guide to what counts as the right track. Um, there's just you know there's a wealth of uh, of experimental results that uh, point roughly in the direction that you're leading. Well, um, thank you. It's it, it, <laughs> it's really good of you to say that. Um, I hope you're right. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it's 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 just the best I could do um, from you know non-experts um, position, and you know, it's it's sort of the kind of thing that that a philosopher has to do. You know, Hume would sort of have recognized this way of doing philosophy, sure. I suppose. Um, you know, you you develop sort of a, a, an argument on conceptual grounds. Um, so, uh, you know, the argument that I'm developing on conceptual grounds um, goes a little bit like follow. Look, you know, joint perception is a fact. Perceptual common knowledge is a fact. How do we explain this? Well, you know, sort of we have to somehow be operating um, with a framework that allows us to treat our own spatial position and the spatial position um, of uh, our co-perceivers, um, co-knowers, co-agents as equally fundamental um, how can that be? Well, you know, if you look at if you look at what you know the literature tells us about um, how uh, how action is possible, this binding of different kinds of information um, at a particular place, then it sort of makes sense to suppose that well, you know, sort of then we we you know sort of we we should think that it's it's perhaps possible to to bind this information at at different places. Um, mm -hmm. And so so you know sort of it's it's yeah it's it's a little bit sort of you know sort of it's it's not this is not you know sort of beautifully clean uh, you know transcendental argument. And whoom, it's it's sort of muddling your way through. But you know, in this field, it would be ludicrous to write, you know, an extended extended treatise about right. what I'm writing about and not look at what scientists do. Right, right. So um uh let's um I want to make sure we have time to get to um part four of the book, mm. um, which uh sort of takes the Externalist account of perceptual common knowledge and this, the social spatial framework stuff and the um, constellations, um, and uh, tries to formulate or formulates a view of joint attention. Although um, you have some doubts about mm. uh, whether that's a, an appropriate term, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that account has to do with um, uh, ways in which you you talk about different kinds of perspective taking mm -hmm. and the different capacities uh, for those different kinds of perspective taking. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the sort of the, the joint attention and perspective taking sort of aspect of, uh, of the view? Yes, absolutely. So joint attention, you know, was um, my starting point. Um, some years ago, I edited a book um, on this topic and, you know, sort of through a conference um, that, you know, everybody, or not everybody, but very many people who uh, I deeply admire for your work on the topic um, in philosophy and um, psychology um, came to and, and gave talks. And uh, so in the beginning, what I wanted to do is, okay, I, I, I thought I'm, I'm just going to write, you know, philosophical treatise of joint attention. Um, it shouldn't be too long. I told my publisher, you know, three years max, because, um, you know, this is all relatively well developed, I thought. And, and then I started and little did I know. And all of a sudden, you know, it took seven years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so not, been, but, not been in philosophy seven years, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, well. Um, so, uh, so uh, you know, joint attention um, is um, a, 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 an incredibly powerful and important um, term that, you know, was... Um, first introduced in psychology um, 
uh, in the 1980s, around 1980, and you know, sort of, it 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 was the first kind of observation that um, it is a crucially vital um, feature of human socio-cognitive development um, that we be able to, you know, um, look at, point out, communicate about objects in the world um, together. Um, and um, and um, uh, this was a very powerful thought. And, you know, in the past 20 years, philosophers have begun to take up this thought. Um, and, um, and lots and lots of things are now being explained by appeal to the notion of joint attention, um, which on the one hand is, of course, beautiful. Um, but at the same time, it struck me that, um, it, you know, this is a bit of a lucky bag. It's a bit of a grab bag because when we look a bit more close, we don't actually have a good account of what joint attention is because, you know, for this simple um, problem um, that I uh, mentioned at the beginning, um, it's not clear how to think of a kind of perception in which different perspectives combine to give us uh, common knowledge about what's being perceived, right? Yeah. Um, and we didn't, we don't have that, or to my knowledge, we don't. And that's what I'm sort of trying to spell out. And so, so you know, sort of all these appeals to joint attention uh, are, are a little bit, you know, there's this comic sort of where somebody does um, a, a, a complicated um, mathem mathematical calculation, and then um, and then the miracle occurs, and then there's a solution. <laughs> and so there's a little whiff of that too, you know. And so I wanted to, you know, sort of. Uh, carry this discussion um, a little bit um, further, um, and so um, so um, you know when you when you take um, what I've been saying um, about um, uh, common knowledge and, and joint perception um, uh, in, in in the past um, hour or so, um, then you know sort of something like the following emerges. Um, what seems to emerge is that what we begin to be able to do at around our first birthdays, so when joint attention kicks in, is that um, we have at our disposition um, the social-spatial framework. Um, so that, you know, is then, you know, mature in the human developing mind-brain that allows us um, to treat different positions in space as origins of um, perspective. Um, so that's, that's, you know, sort of when joint attention begins to um, first happen. Um, and then, you know, from, from then onwards, developmentally, it takes still um, about a year and a half, which is a very, very long time um, for um, children to um, be able to solve um, level one perspective taking tasks, um, which are tasks where um, the child is able to tell what another person can see, even though um, she's not able to tell yet how the other person sees it mm -hmm. um and and um i you know sort of think i can i can sort of and, and then it takes another two years or so till level two perspective taking um is is really possible interestingly that's also about the time when um when uh, false belief tasks you know sort of first right. begin to be solved um and um and so um so you know sort of i i think that you know what is what is happening um in the second year of life um of um the developing um, human is that um, a reflective grip of the triadic constellation of the social spatial framework is being acquired. Once you've got that, you can solve these level one perspective taking tasks because you can socially triangulate, right? Mm -hmm. Even though you can you cannot still still not not yet you know sort of answer particular questions about how this thing looks 
like from a different um, perspective, because for that you have to carry out more complicated computational processes that you can't do yet. And so I, I think that joint attention, even though I deeply admire and I'm grateful to the people who gave us that term, is strictly speaking a misnomer. Um, I, I, I think that what there really is is joint perception, and it's really you know sort of a form of perception because it is its objects are presented in a particular spatial framework, um, and then within that framework, individuals can attend to these jointly perceived objects, but the attention itself remains um, an individual act. Um, and so, um, which which sort of makes a bit of perfect sense because if you if you you know if you if you try to take the term joint attention literally, um, what could it mean to join right. at, to together attend pick out one object amongst the many objects at your at your perceptual disposal, right? Um, you'd need some sort of a group mind somehow somehow, and you know that's somewhere I, I'm not going. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> So, so right. So, you know, that's that's sort of the 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 rub of um, what I want to say about about uh, joint attention and perspectives. Great. Um, so, Axel, you've you've been very generous with your time, and I want to thank you for um, uh, for making time uh, to talk about uh, your new book. Um, so, uh, this is a so you can take the 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 final question of our interview uh, in either of the following two directions, um, and maybe they converge anyway. So. Um, so the final chapter of the book um, uh, discusses some applications of the view, um, and I want to invite you either to talk about that uh, or um, to tell us about your next project or to tell us whether working out the applications is the next project. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Okay. So um, I want to draw attention to um, the consideration that if any of what I've been saying makes sense. Um, it throws a new light um, on a wide variety variety of questions in um, in the philosophy of mind. Not all of them um, of a social nature. Um, so um, so uh, you know, sort of uh, what partly is is applied in the book, and but what partly is you know, sort of a future plan as well. Um, it throws a new light on questions about the nature of the self. For example, um, because because you know, sort of what what cannot be true if I am right is that you know there is a basic form of situatedness in the spatial environment that you know sort of makes you the subject you are. Like you know, if if I'm right, then 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 um, well, you know, sort of uh, in the beginning, there's 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 you know, sort of centers of perception. There's persons. This is a deeply Stolzonian thought by the way so you know right, so right, right. Had, had had i think pretty much exactly this idea you know in, in individuals in 1959 um and then once we've got that then we can you know sort of individuate um particular persons as uh, oneself or, or others and then there's a story in the book about how that goes but you know we're not going to go into right. that so 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 that's one you know that's one upshot of uh or, or implication um of what i'm what i'm talking about then it's got it's got you know um, implications for the question of mind reading. Um, right. Uh, you know, if I am right, then the most basic form of perceptual common knowledge, um, that's where, that's where you know, sort of, that's where our minds first come together. But, but mind reading doesn't come into it. You know, this is simply something that's, that's given to us by the environment, you know, and yet it is common knowledge, right? No knowledge of minds is required for that. 
So, uh, you know, that's, 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 that's another, you know, sort of um, uh, implication. I just wrote a paper about that, you know, so fingers crossed someone's going to publish it. Um, <laughs> and, and, and uh, right, and, and, and lastly, you know, so we can, we can, we can think about um, uh, the perception of spatial properties um, and argue that, you know, what I've been saying is, is, is relevant for that. So we can think about, you know, sort of uh, things that really don't have to do on the face of it with, you know, sort of the social mind at all. Um, so there's all of that, um, and I want to write about it and think more about it. Um, but what I also want to do is two other things. Um, I want to uh, write a more um, applied, a more practical um, uh, book, perhaps a more popular book on loneliness. So kind of, you know, in a way, you know, <laughs> the flip side of uh, what I've been looking at. Um, what, you know, what is what happens from a philosophical perspective when you don't, you know, feel at least connected in the right way to other people. Um, I want to do that. Um, and then um, further down the road, I so now I've talked about social space. And I think that in order to get a full layer understanding of sociality than is, you know, provided by that line of thought, we have to think about social time. And uh, so that's mm. further down the line. Um, and wish me luck for that. <laughs> well, um... Uh, I was, you know, it's funny you should mention um, the interest in loneliness. Um, uh, I was just uh, reading a, a, or recently had read a, a manuscript um, by Kimberly Brownlee um, that is uh, about um, a human right to social connectedness. Um, and so she's, she's working on loneliness too. So um, I don't know if it's possible to work together with somebody on loneliness, uh, but, um, <laughs> but um, you, you won't be alone in working on loneliness uh, is Fantastic. one way to put it. It's, it's <laughs> amazing. I thank you for that. Um, for that alone, this interview was worth it because, you know, it's, it's, it's striking. There's this huge perceived public health crisis. Um, and, uh, and I know lots of other disciplines that are talking about it. Historians are talking about it. Obviously, psychologists are talking about it and at least analytic philosophers um seem to be as far as i know pretty much completely silent on the matter and that's really weird because we have lots of things to say um should yeah. have lots of things to say so so anybody listening in you know sort of get in touch like you know right <laughs> <laughs> i will uh share with you once we're once once we're uh, off mic here or off recording i'll share with you um the the the, the title of uh, kimberly's book okay. um but for now axel um i just want to again uh thank you for uh for making time uh to talk about uh your book the shared world it was such a pleasure thank you so much Great. Uh, and thank you, listeners, uh, for joining us on New Books in Philosophy and for uh, um, listening to uh, our discussion of Axel Simon's book, The Shared World, which is newly published by MIT Press. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.